Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series, Preparing Us for Easter. This morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, a number of years ago, our son Jack um, seemed to struggle with the croup every uh, late fall and, and the beginning of winter. It seemed every year. And... Um, we would do what we were instructed to do in situations like that. By the way, you know what the croup is. It's an upper respiratory infection where the child 
coughs that it makes them kind of sound like a seal and it can be very traumatic for the parent and hard for the child and just a very very stressful thing and um, so when that happened we were told to go into the bathroom and close the door and turn on the shower very hot and try to get warm moist air to flow through his lungs or if that didn't work go outside into the cold night air and hopefully that would reduce the inflammation um, and to maybe maybe alternate those things well one year uh, neither of those things worked we went in the bathroom and tried that and that didn't help Jack he was probably six or seven at the time we took him outside and walked around for a period of time and that didn't work we went back into the bathroom it didn't work again and um, I grew very afraid it, it seemed to be um, worse than than it had ever been before and Steph and I talked it was one or two in the morning and I said I've got to take it so we got in the car took him to Baylor uh, ER thankfully there weren't a lot of people there and so um, I went to the admitting nurse with her computer I sat him on the desk and told her what was going on and so she took out her stethoscope immediately listened to his lungs and immediately got up and took him to the back room got a doctor where they administered uh, steroids through IVs um, because the situation was so bad and in about 30 minutes 45 minutes he was feeling a lot better and it was um, I was very thankful for that but I could not imagine replaying the scenario I could not imagine if I was um, walking with the nurse back to the room and if the nurse would have stopped to get into a conversation with someone okay who was leaving and feeling fine I couldn't imagine if the nurse would have stopped what she was doing to engage in that conversation when my son was in distress well that's kind of the picture that we get in our passage this morning except it wasn't a nurse it was Jesus who got seemingly distracted uh, with a conversation that he didn't need to have given the circumstances our story picks up on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee and it's very clear from our text that um, Jesus's reputation as a rabbi and a miracle worker had exploded what happened to him reminds me um, of what I saw a few weeks ago with Rafael Nadal okay he was uh, practicing at the Australian Open and when he, when he finished on a practice court he went back to the locker room and in the course of that trip he was mobbed by fans I mean hundreds and hundreds of people were gathering around him while he was walking on his way and he had handlers around him that were trying to make sure he had room and he got to a certain place and it was so bad and there were so many people that a child got pinned against a wall and so he had to pick the child up and bring the child on the other side so that the child would be safe there were so many people so many autograph seekers that's what you should have in your mind's eye Jesus was mobbed with people what had likely happened is that there were many fishermen on the Sea of Galilee and no doubt someone in their boat had seen Jesus and the disciples heading towards shore and had gone ahead of him and announced to everyone that Jesus is coming and so it turned into a mob scene well in that throng of people was a man named Jairus and he was one of the rulers 
of a local synagogue. Now a synagogue is different than the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem. The temple is where the people would travel three times a year to engage in the various feasts. That's different than a synagogue. Synagogues developed out of the Babylonian captivity when the people had no place to worship and there was no temple the people would gather in their various localities, okay, to worship in a local context. And they would hear the scripture read. And they would hear the text preached. And there would be people praying. And that evolved over hundreds of years, where by this time there were synagogues all over Israel. And Jairus was the leader of one of the local synagogues at Capernaum. One scholar describes his duties like this. A ruler of a synagogue was someone with general oversight of the synagogue, and he was responsible for the orthodoxy of the teaching. That's a big responsibility. His responsibilities also included building maintenance, security, acquiring scrolls for scripture reading, arranging the Sabbath day worship by designating readers, prayers, and preachers. And so his job was an important one. I think it is likely, because this was near Capernaum, that Jesus had taught there and healed there before. And Jairus would have been very familiar with Jesus. And so he goes to Jesus, which is also an indicator of what he thought was Jesus, uh, of how significant Jesus was. Mark tells us that Jairus was desperate. I mean, this is an understatement. Anybody that has children understands how desperate Jairus was. Second half of 22. Seeing Jesus, he, Jairus, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Again, I, I, it's hard to put into words how desperate I felt when my son was in the back seat and labored in his breathing. It's hard to put that into words. I cannot imagine how Jairus felt. Jairus indicates that his daughter was on the brink of death. Okay, she ends up dying. So obviously he knew that we are at the end. And he falls at Jesus' feet and implores Jesus to come. Okay, so this is, this is a very um, dramatic part of the story. But I want to stop here and I want to take a breath because Mark stops here. And Mark interrupts this story with another story. We've talked about this before. This is where Mark employs what's called a Markin sandwich, okay? It happens up to nine times in the Gospel of Mark. That's when Mark starts the story, story A, interrupts story A with story B, concludes story B, and then comes back to story A. And the meat of that sandwich often provides the interpretive key. And that's what's happening here. Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house, and the situation was extremely critical. Look at verse 23. Jairus says, my little daughter is at the point of death. 
Jesus goes, and then something interrupts him. Look at verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians. Medicine then was not like medicine today. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. In ancient Judaism, the condition of this woman would have made her, functionally speaking, like a leper. She would have been viewed as ritually unclean. The book of Leviticus is very specific about that. Anyone that touched her, anything that she came into contact with, would make that person or thing ritually unclean which would have required separation. Physicians over the years have speculated what condition did she have that would have caused her to bleed perpetually for 12 years. There's lots of thoughts, various ideas. Maybe it was uh, uterine fibroids, maybe it was uterine cancer, maybe it was something else that caused her to bleed all the time. Regardless of what it was, it was both isolating and impoverishing. She couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't go to the synagogue. The text implies that she was single because of this. Look at the text. What did it say regarding um, her income? It says that she spent all that she had which implies she wasn't married. So either her husband had divorced her because to be married her to her would have made him ritually unclean, okay, or it had kept her from ever getting married. But she had spent her life savings, and she was worse off than when she began. She was isolated and alone. This is the picture of desperation. And that's why she didn't go to Jesus directly and asked Jesus to lay his hands on her. Because to lay his hands on her would have made Jesus ritually unclean. And that's what she was afraid of. And she was so desperate that she took matters into her own hands. And she had also heard something that was very helpful. Interestingly, in Mark chapter six, Mark tells us this. Mark tells us that wherever Jesus went, all who touched the edge of his garment were healed. So lots of times people think that this might have been a one-time case where this woman went and touched Jesus and was healed. This happened lots. And she had heard about it. So she thought, this might be my chance. And so she goes for it. So I would ask you briefly, can you relate to her? Have you ever felt so desperate that you would have done just about anything to get this situation resolved? That's how she felt. Look at verse 27. Well, she had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said to herself, if I touch even his garments, 
I will be made well. Earlier in 27, she had heard the reports. Verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Isn't that interesting? What would that have felt like? For she instantly knew that she was healed and that she was well and whole. Verse 30, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, what this indicates to me is that this was not Jesus's typical practice. Okay? I think what was Jesus's typical practice is those who came to him in faith and touched his garments were made well, and he continued on his way. But this time he didn't. He stopped. He said, who touched my garments? Look at the response of his disciples. They scoffed at him. How did they respond? They were incredulous. You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? That is a sarcastic and cynical response, and I want you to remember it. So I think this was unusual for him to stop and ask, who touched me? Verse 32. He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, friends, I'll tell you this also, this has the ring of being eyewitness testimony. The details that are given, as they're given, as you know, Mark, we know from history, was Peter's assistant. This is no doubt eyewitness testimony from the apostle Peter himself. You know what's interesting? This is what I would call an undesigned coincidence. Who gets named in the story in terms of the, of the two characters? Jairus gets named. Why does Jairus get named? Well, this synagogue was in Capernaum. And where did Peter have his house at this time? Capernaum. Peter would have known Jairus. That's why Jairus is listed. These are all eyewitness details that come from Peter himself. Verse 32. Jesus looked around to see who had done it. I'm sure Peter was one of the ones who said, why are you asking who did this to you? How could we possibly know that? Verse 33. But the woman knowing what had happened to her you know she started to feel guilty and self-conscious she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth now i can promise you that jairus is dying a thousand deaths when this happened i mean i can't imagine how i would have felt if that nurse who was taking Jack Ray to the back had stopped to get into what I would view to be a trivial conversation when my son can't breathe, I would have gone apoplectic. It would have just overwhelmed me. And you know Jairus is sitting there saying, like, do you have to have this conversation right now? She's already healed. She's fine. My daughter is on the brink of death. What are we doing here, Jesus? But I want you to take note of something. Verse 34. Okay, Jesus stops to engage with the woman. The end of verse 33. What did she tell him? 
says she told him what? The whole truth. Friends, this took some time. Okay? This took some time. And this is what caused Jairus' daughter to die. This delay. Verse 34. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, this is the woman. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Why did he stop? Why did he do this? He wanted the woman to hear that she was restored and made whole. And he did so by addressing her as what? Daughter. He didn't call her woman. He didn't call her something else. He called her daughter. What do you think she had been struggling with for 12 years? She had been struggling with isolation, with feeling like an outcast on the fringe of society. Not only was she healed, but she was also restored and loved and brought in, and he referred to her as daughter. And I think he wanted Jairus to hear him refer to this woman as daughter so that Jairus would trust him with his daughter. Question for you. How long does the text indicate that the woman had been struggling with her condition? How long? Twelve years. How old was the little girl? Twelve years old. Lots of connections here. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. If you could condense the entire Bible into one charge, that would be it. Don't fear, don't worry, don't get distracted, only believe. Trust in me. Verse 37, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Jesus' time had not yet come. These kinds of miracles were not for public display yet. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly, which indicated that the girl was actually dead. That group of people probably not only involved the family members, but professional mourners that would be employed in first century Judaism when someone died. Verse 39. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Look at verse 40. And they laughed at him. What was the response of the disciples when Jesus said, Someone touched me? They scoffed at him. And they said, How in the world could we know that? There are so many people around you. Jesus said, She's not dead, but sleeping. And the people did what to Jesus? They laughed at him. Look at all of the connections, all of the parallels. 
parallels don't stop there. There's a similar dilemma. Why did the first woman approach Jesus in secrecy, hoping to just touch his garment? Why didn't she go up to him and ask him to lay his hands on her? Why? Because she was concerned that he would balk because she was what? Unclean. This little girl is dead. What does that make her body according to Leviticus? Unclean. Parallel after parallel after parallel. But he put them all outside. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, he's speaking in Aramaic, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. What does Mark say? Why? For she was 12 years old of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat so I ask you when time was of the essence why did Jesus stop and engage with the woman who had already been healed when Jairus's daughter is on the brink of death I would argue it's because he knew what both of them needed. He knew that the woman not only needed to be healed, she needed to be restored and brought back into the community. And therefore he called her daughter. And he knew what Jairus needed. Jairus needed to trust Jesus with his most treasured possession, which was what? His little daughter. Don't fear, Jairus. Only believe. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter at the Last Supper? When they were um, engaging in the foot washing ceremony. And Peter was amazed that Jesus would wash his feet. And Peter was uncomfortable with that. Do you remember what, Peter, what Jesus said? To Peter, he said, Peter, now you don't understand. But one day you will. One day you will totally understand. And that's exactly what's going on in this text. In the moment, Jairus didn't understand. As the story is unfolding, it made no sense why Jesus would take the time to engage the woman when the little girl was dying. But by the end of the story, we totally understand that what he was doing is he was making two people who were unclean, one at the verge of death, the woman, which implied she was like, you know, at her wit's end and on the brink of death, and the little girl who died. And he made them both clean, and he brought them both, both back to life. And, and, and he says to... Um, to Jairus, some of my favorite words, don't fear, only believe. That's why he came. He came to make us clean. He came to make us whole. Okay? Things in this world don't make sense. 
Things in this world are difficult. Spurgeon's devotional. In this world, you and I will have trouble. I want to read to you again the end of Spurgeon's devotional. I encourage you to read it on your own. Spurgeon writes, Although tribulation is the path of God's children, we have the comfort of knowing our Master has traveled it before with us, I'm sorry, before us, and goes with us. And when we reach the kingdom, it will more than make amends. Let me read that again. When we reach the kingdom, it will more than make amends for the great tribulation through which we have passed to enter it. Do not fear, Providence Presbyterian Church. Only believe in Jesus. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you for your, your graciousness and your loving kindness. Father, we are astounded at the layers that are contained in this word. Father, we thank you that you engaged with the woman who was viewed as, as unclean, as an outcast who lived at the fringe of society, and you healed her and made her whole and well. You addressed her as daughter and brought her back in. And a little girl who had died and was unclean, you raised back to life and made whole and restored her to her family. And what was unthinkable, you accomplished. Father, you, you do um, all things for the good of your people, for those who have been called according to your purpose. Father, we are um, a doubting people, a skeptical people, just like the disciples. We are a people saying, why did you do this? And why did you do that? And if I were you, I would do this and I would do that. I wouldn't have done it this way. I would have done it that way. Father, we are just like the disciples. We are just like the people who were in that room who laughed at the things that you said. And yet you have been gracious to us. You have not engaged with us according to what our sins deserve, but you have shown grace and mercy to us. Father, we thank you for these amazing texts which prepare us for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would help us to heed the words of Jesus today. Do not fear, only believe. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen and amen.